you know, Cuban sandwiches obviously were a huge favorite and any sandwich slinger in town, you know, their most busy days were all around Gasparilla. So, you know, if you normally sold 2,000 sandwiches a week, you might sell 10,000 to that week. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm, The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. If pirates invade and conquer your city, is that a reason to celebrate? If it's Tampa, it definitely is reason enough for a party. The Gasparilla Pirate Festival will be washing ashore soon. We get the story behind one of the country's largest outdoor festivals and learn about the food that goes with it. Plus, another recipe from the historic and fabulous Gasparilla Cookbook. Support for the Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. Gasparilla started out at the turn of the 20th century as a sedate little music program. Then organizers decided to throw in a pirate invasion to spice things up, and boy, did they. Our next guest calls Gasparilla Mardi Gras without the Catholicism. Andrew Hughes is an associate librarian at the University of South Florida in Special Collections, and he also chronicles Florida food history. Yeah, I've been interested in Gasparilla for a long time, especially because the story itself is so absurd. Uh, <laughs> Tell us a story. Well, you know, I, I wrote an article some time ago called The People's Hist- History of Gasparilla. Uh-huh. It's like, what is this all about? You know, so we're celebrating the invasion of our city by pirates. Right. Jose uh, Gaspar. Right. And I, that never made sense to me. <laughs> I mean, unless you really hate the city you live in. <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, you have to understand, you have to go back over 100 years and understand that this was, it was an event created by and for the elite. And that's why the gas, the Jose Gaspar legend to me is so interesting because it's been tailored to tell a certain story about the people who invented the celebration. So, I mean, they, they picked a Spaniard, but then, uh, you know, they've, they doctored the story in a number of different ways. So he's a Spanish noble because they consider themselves of high birth. Um, and uh, he eventually betrayed the Spanish Navy because we don't really like the Spanish so much. So he, you know, uh, they were incompetent. He betrayed them. It could have been a woman. It could have been political. Uh, but, you know, the whole story, it's, it's 100 years too late to be part of the kind of golden age of piracy. And... There's never a consistent story that's been told. You know, it's uh, it's been told, you know, in dribs and drabs over a century. So it's not okay, Andy. Too coherent. It's a it's an excuse for a party, right? Come on. You right. Know, you don't look into it too closely. Some historians but- <laughs> do. <laughs> so Gasparilla is the story of the pirate Jose Gaspar who invades Tampa, and right. he's repelled. By no, he's given the key to the city give, at gunpoint. <laughs> given the so, key to the city, right? So this is a way, uh, you know, you think of a way to um, for people to 
live out their fantasies. You know? Right, you, right. You hold the bear at gunpoint. Yeah. He gives you this, you know, the the key to the city, and um, and then you basically, you know, you rule the town. Um, at at the end of the party, you take off the pirate clothes, but it's pretty much the same scenario, <laughs> you know. Um, so it was it was a celebration imposed on the city, you know, uh, by the people at the top. And it took it took some time before, I guess, the rest of the city um, uh, realized they could they could misbehave too. They could join in. Yeah. So you know, for a long time, it was a very orderly affair. Everyone, um, you know, there there was no beads. It was all uh, shell casings that that they threw, like bullet casings so, and so, coins and yeah. So let's just describe it for people who haven't right. been there. It's like Mardi Gras without Catholicism. Okay, that's basically what the the elites were looking at. They wanted a Mardi Gras type of thing to to bring lots of people, and they started to do a into music, the city into the into Tampa, right? Mm-hmm. And um, um, they started with a music festival in 1904, I believe. And uh, you know, it was nice, but it was very feminine. Um, it, and um, I think. There was no surprises, you know. So the next year it was like, oh, we're going to have the music festival, but look out for the pirates, you know, or there's a big <laughs> surprise coming. So, and then of course mm-hmm. all the all the men got to dress up like pirates and um, and act out this this thing. So and they had a parade. Then they came in by boat, but right. then they also had a parade. So they were kind of taking their cues from Mardi Gras, right? And it, it took a while. They originally ar- arrived on horseback. Um, it took a while for them to to bring a yacht into it and then, um, you know, an old kind of Barge is what ship. they have now. Sort right, of. Mm-hmm. right. So um, it took a while for it to get up to that to that scale, but it began kind of, you know, on the small side. But it always has a parade. So, you know, the idea is Jose Gaspar lands with his crew of merry pirates. They parade. They invade the city. Um, everyone... Uh, celebrates the fact and then they they take the 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 city um the key to the city and then the the pirate um you know rain lasts over the weekend basically and then there's always a gasparilla king and queen there's a debutante ball um those kinds of social things associated with it right and it began as a private event Mm -hmm. so you know the city would not be invited to this it would be a very small very very exclusive just like the um the the crew of Gaspar itself was very still is to some extent but very exclusive so rather than open up Gasparilla the crew they just opened it up to other crews um, and that happened very gradually and over time mm-hmm. um, so like for example it wasn't until the 1970s that we had the crew of Santiago which was specifically created to to actually represent real Spanish people mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, that was uh, the beginning of it opening up and then after kind of the debacle in 1990, then you have a lot of, you know, uh, things opening up. But in 1990, there was a kind of a lot of bad press around it because it had been linked to the Super Bowl. Um, and so they, they moved it to Super Bowl Sunday weekend. And a lot of people nationally started asking questions about what Gasparilla was, what it stood for. Did African-Americans participate, for example? So once those questions started to come about um, – um, well, first of all, the crew quickly kind of um, retooled to have a kind of a philanthropic mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did more things like raise money for the community and do things like that, 
which other crews had already kind of started to do. But that was one of the other questions was, is this just a party for the elite or are they doing good things for people? So Gasparilla has changed a lot over you know, over time. And like I said, the actual celebrations have changed a lot. You know, they were very orderly, um, you know, initially and, uh, you know, in the middle of the century, like in the 50s and the 60s, you have a lot of people on bleachers, you know, watching the uh, parade. So a lot of the food would have been takeout food, you know, picnic type food. But then you also have lots and lots of parties along the route in South Tampa, et cetera. So you, you're talking about two different experiences, and depending on whether or not you're driving in for the day, or you know someone along the route, and you're having a you know throwing a party, you're going to have two very different kind of sets of food. Um, so for a long time, you know Cuban sandwiches obviously were a huge favorite, and everybody, any sandwich slinger in town, you know their their most busy days were all around Gasparilla. Um, so, uh, that's where you would have, you know, if you normally sold 2000 sandwiches a week, you might sell 10,000 to that week. Um, it would be a huge, huge difference. Um, also, you know, there's a lot of the other, uh, street food that Tampa's known for, uh, you know, devil crabs, things like that. You'd have a lot of vendors. Just um, tell me about devil crab. That's r- a big Tampa thing. Right. Yeah, like so many things, we don't know exactly where it came from. We don't know if it's exactly Cuban or Spanish. Um, but it's uh, like so many things in Tampa, it's kind of all those things, I guess. A um, mashup. Right. Yep. And, and um, so around the 1920s is when they became really popular. But the the earliest references I find are in the 19-teens, at least here in Tampa. Um, now, if you go back far enough, you deviled crab meant like a canned crab product, you know, like deviled ham. But here it, it means a croquette. So it's, um, they were initially really small croquettes, smaller than, you know, like golf ball sized, even smaller. Um, but over time, like so many things here in the States, they grew. But they were initially rather small and they were crab croquettes. So you'd have crab mixed with some onions and peppers, like a sofrito, little tomato. Um, and then you'd have old Cuban breadcrumbs that you would soak in water and that would form your crust. And then once you've kind of enrobed that, um, then you roll it in dry Cuban breadcrumbs and then fry it. So it's and, got Cuban breadcrumbs inside it, then also rolled in it right. and fried. And it was spicy, right? Yes. I mean, initially it was supposed to be like hot as the devil crabs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over time they became deviled crabs, E-D. But um, a lot of the early references, you know, refer to devil crabs. Um, but... Uh, yeah, over time, they lost the heat somehow. So then, you know, a hot sauce became like a mandatory thing. So, like, if you bought it from a vendor on the street, often they'd have these, you know, push carts with, uh, like, a glass box. And you'd have all your croquettes in there, and there'd be sterno, you know, inside to keep them warm. And then when he sold one to you, he'd uh, usually have a bottle of hot sauce. He'd stick the nozzle right inside the, the devil crab and give it a good squeeze. So it would have plenty of hot sauce inside of it. Um, so yeah, over time, the, the red pepper flakes sort of went away, um, and it was at your own. So it Are they still eating those at Gasparilla? I would assume so. I think that, I don't think that a lot of people are making them. They're, you know, they're labor intensive to make. Uh, so I think some fanatics out there might be making them, but I think a lot of people are buying them, 
you know, from from shops and vendors and things like that. That's what I'm wondering. Like, are there vendors along the route that are selling devil crabs at Gasparilla? (sighs) Any more? That was an old-timey thing? Right. I I can't remember the last time I saw devil crab on sale. I mean, now it's like it's all of the the people who set up at the Florida State Fair and other things like that. Um, So they're selling Italian sausage sandwiches, you know. Funnel typical, cakes, right? Stuff that kind like of that. That's what you're getting now. Fair food, right? Yeah. So we're going back. We're kind of looking at historic Gasparilla right. food. Yeah. Right. Okay. Just so, to clarify. Yeah. So you would have, you know, you'd either have your picnic folks or you'd have your party in a house folks. So like my the the recipes that I brought uh, today are around. You know, if you're in a home, you know, and and someone's celebrating and you can actually cook. Um, or cook ahead of time and then, you know, bring it to the party. So for many years, uh, I was invited to a party and I, I volunteered for uh, breakfast because I wanted to be free for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so picadillo was, was my go-to dish because it's great, it's great with eggs, you know, you can ha- or you can have it with just some bread. Um, and then uh, you can have it all through lunch. You can, you know, just keep eating it all day long. So it's one of those kind of things where um, it's a good, you know, hearty dish to start with. I also think that, you know, the other part of the equation was they, they close all the streets like after 9 a.m. So everyone had to be at this house by then, you know, if you're coming from out of town. So everyone's stuck there for the day. So, you know, it's always, well, then eat early and eat often, you know, if you plan on drinking you know, so otherwise you're going to be, you know, by noon, you're going to be taking a nap. So, yeah. So you thought this out. So right. tell me about Picadillo. Uh, Picadillo, it's um, for a long time, there was visitors who came to this party and there was like, where is that Cuban chili at? You know, or the Cuban sloppy Joe. Um, but it's a, it's a great dish, especially for Gasparilla. First of all, because you're not going to break the bank. It's, you know, it's ground beef. Um it's also just a it's just a great dish. I mean, um, great dishes can wake up your palate like nothing else. And I remember I was probably in my mid-20s and did not care for olives until I had a really good version of Picadillo. And after that, it just blew it wide open. Now I eat olives, you know, with everything. Um, it's not, a, not an issue. So uh, I think, you know, Picadillo is one of those great dishes where you know the the flavor of the olives, the beef. Well, describe you know. it. What is picadillo? Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a ground. Think of um, all right. Everyone knows sloppy Joe, but this is like sloppy Joe on steroids. You know, with some serious flavor <laughs> yeah. added. So, you know, you've got your typical. You've got your beef. You've got vinegar, um, but then you've got other things. So maybe where sloppy Joe might just have onions. This has onions, peppers. That's typical sofrito. So onions, peppers, tomatoes. Um, and then you also have, you know, your kind of briny ingredients. So that's where you get your olives, um, capers. And then, of course, there's a sweet element as well. And that's where the wine comes in. And a lot of people add raisins uh, to help with that kind of that that sweeter note. Um, there's a little bit of sugar in it, too. But aside from that, there's, you know, I, I spice it up with a couple other things. And, of course, it's got cumin in it, which, um, you know, if it's Cuban, it, it might have cumin in it uh, because it's a one of the most used spices. But um, so you just mix it all together, kind of like a sloppy yeah. joke consistency, right? You cook it all together, and for me, like one of the big things um, with my recipe is I instead of adding a bunch of salt, I add the olive brine. 
So I add a few, you know, tablespoons of olive brine to taste. So like rather than adding salt, that olive brine really adds it adds salt, but then it adds a lot of that olive flavor that really permeates the dish. And that, to me, is the olives, the beef, and that sweetness that that all um, really balance out and make it just a wonderful dish. So whether you're serving it like on, you know, just with Cuban bread or you're serving it on rice or, um, you know, in my case, I served it with Cuban toast and um, scrambled eggs, you know, and then... People, Do you put it next to the scrambled eggs? Right. Or, it, yeah, I don't mix it all together because, mm-hmm. you know, some people just want eggs and toast. Some people just want eggs and picadillo. Mm-hmm. So everyone can kind of uh, put their own mixture together. Um, and then, you know, you can always keep it in a crock pot or something like that so that long after lunch people can graze over it. Um, what are you drinking with that? Whatever you want. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm just wondering if that at your Gasparilla party starting in the morning with right. spicy picadillo. Right. Um, you got sangria? Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a lot of rooster tails, <laughs> which is basically just um, it's a shot of tequila followed by a shot of tomato juice followed by a shot of orange juice. Okay. Yeah. And you're supposed to do a... Cock-a-doodle-doo at the end. <laughs> anyway, that wasn't my idea. But, um, you know, that was something that we saw quite a bit of. Um, but, you know, I don't know if we – we never really had a, uh, a a program. But, you know, obviously rum is, is going to be a good idea if you're going to – if you want to make, um, you know, uh, mojitos or old-style daiquiris, you know, uh, before the, the days of crushed ice. Um, so uh, I think that's always a, a good one. Obviously, sangria by the gallon, you know, you can, that's very easy to make and throw together. So sangria would be a, would be a good one, especially if you're looking for something in those early hours, you know. Do you like the Columbia restaurant sangria mix? Have you ever tried um, that? I don't know if I've tried it. I, I love their sangria. The at sangria, the, at sangria. the restaurant? Yeah, but I, um, I don't typically do mixes, you know, I just get wine and fruit and throw it together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a plug for their sangria mix. Right. It's good. It's good, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and it helps if you use all the great um, liquid ingredients they use, too. Like, they use a really good um, brandy, a Torres brandy in their um, in their top-shelf sangria, and it's worth it's worth the extra money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, getting back to the to the Gasparilla food. So the picadillo, that sounds great. We'll have that recipe on our website. Right. Yeah, and and before you know, uh, the old folks send in uh, the their objections. It is my version. <laughs> there are some ingredients like there is a squirt of ketchup in there. I think it just gives it a little glossiness that I like. They might not like it. Just leave it out, or you know, or make your version. <laughs> so Andy says, don't at him. Just uh, make your own if you don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and and I've I've had a lot of pe- served it to a lot of people, and. Uh, Never get a complaint, you know. So it doesn't sound like you would. All right. Now there is a, a blue crab recipe that you were talking about. Right, crab ch- chilau, chilau, enchilado, enchilau. Right. It's one of these dishes where every ethnic group had its own way of saying it. A, a different name, yeah. Right. So the crackers would say ch- chilau. You know, um, African Americans I've heard shala. Um, enchilado is the way that the Cubans would have said it. It's actually enchilado, but like so many things, it just becomes, you know, enchilado. And, uh, so, um, 
And if you try to write enchilado, it will always, you know, spell check will always change to enchilada. But this is not a Mexican, you know, dish wrapped in tortillas. It's it's more of a, um, it's like a crab stew, basically, or a crab sauce, tomato and crab sauce. And this got started just by people. That, I mean, in the old days, the blue crabs were so plentiful in right. the water, in the shallow water. So people would just go down to the beach and grab these things and stew them up right there on the beach. Yeah, you'd spend a day with that. You'd grab some turkey necks or something like that. I mean, you did not need... Um, you know, a, a lot of wherewithal to get blue crabs. You just put a turkey neck with a piece of string, you know, they come right up and start to eat it, and you just, you know, grab them up with a net. Scoop them up. Yeah. So, and, and you know, whole families would do this. You'd spend an afternoon, you know, and maybe, um, you know, some of the older kids are the ones catching the crabs. The younger kids are playing in the sand or whatever. And then, you'd, you know, the day would culminate with actually having a fire on the beach and making a tomato sauce there. Whereas, you know, Later on, a lot of people would then go home and do it there. So now we're going to have to buy the crabs or right. get the crab meat. Right. And then what do we do? Um, so you're going to simmer it with uh, – you're going to start with the sofrito just like you know any other dish. So it's um, you know your onions, peppers, tomatoes. Um, and then you're going to make a tomato sauce. And, you know, I, um, I like a lot of the old versions that I've had, but I, I find that they're a little – Thick. It's really, really thick with tomato and tomato paste. And I really think it's a little too much. It's too heavy for the kind of the crab. Um, so I found that a lighter sauce is uh, works a lot nicer. And I've had um, I've had plenty of people come to me, at, you know, after making the dish and saying, oh, it's great. Um, and there's a, a few times like, you know, it's got beer in it and things like that, that other people, they might not have. Uh, lightened it up as much. Um, but every time I doubt myself, I make the dish again. And I'm like, this is fabulous. So, um, whereas, you know, the old versions were really heavy and it was really a lot of thick tomato. Um, this is a lot, a little lighter and it lets the, I think the crab come through more. And why do you associate this crab shallow with uh, Gasparilla? Well, I mean, I think it's... Um, it's the opposite of the Cuban sandwich where you've got like a personal meal and it's portable. There's nothing portable about <laughs> crab chalau, really. Um, this is and, like the same thing you were talking about before. If you, when you go to your friend's right, house along right. the route, yes. this is the kind of thing you're going to be making. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's just – it's one of those things that's um, – it's probably the most tamp out of all the tampa dishes. You know, you can say chicken and yellow rice, but you can get that all across the Caribbean um, and the United States. Crab chalau, I think, is a different story in that it really is something that's sort of developed organically here, you know, um, where, you know, you've got the pasta, you know, is is obviously supplied by the Italians. And then, you know, the sauce itself is anybody's guess. It's hard to tell where the, you know, kind of the Italian starts, the Cuban starts, and it all kind of blends together. I think that's when, you know, you have neighborhoods like West Tampa and – uh and Ebor City, where people, you know, they're they're in these casitas that are like ten feet, you know, away from each other. So everyone's smelling each other's cooking, um, and I think that had a lot to do with breaking down some barriers, you know. Whereas in places like Chicago or New York, you'd have little Cuba, you know, little Spain, you know, um, little Italy. Whereas here, it was all really mixed up, and they were living in really close quarters. So interesting. Yeah. So I think that's where fusion food happens. 
spontaneously, you know, over time. Yeah. Um, this is one where it's it's impossible to extricate, you know, the dish. So, you know, you can't take the Italian DNA or identify where the Cuban DNA is exactly. Um, it's all mixed up. All right. Well, looking forward to Gasparilla this year. I'm going to try some of these dishes, yes. and we're going to have these recipes on our website. Oh, cool. uh, Andy, thank you so much for being here. Yes, it was my pleasure. Yeah, have a good time. Thanks. <laughs> Sounds like you do. All right. <laughs> I know they're, they're building a new house this year, so no party. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, darn. It's, uh, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> but uh, no, we have, uh, we have a good time. That was USF Associate Librarian Andy Hughes. You'll find his recipes for Sloppy Joe's Cuban cousin, Picadillo, and for Crab Shilau on our website, thezestpodcast.com. When the Junior League of Tampa first published its Gasparilla cookbook back in 1961, the list of contributors read like a who's who of Tampa's social and business elite. We visited the Junior League of Tampa's headquarters on Davis Islands to chat with Stephanie Haas and Laura Hulse. Laura served as the Junior League's cookbook chair from 1973 to 1974, and she talked to us about the cultural importance of this cookbook to the community. Laura, why do you think that it became such an institution in, in Tampa Bay cooking? Well, I think the timing was right. To my knowledge, there had not been another Tampa cookbook. Um, I know many years ago there was a little restaurant here called the Cricket Tea Room, and they did a little small cookbook, but there was not a cookbook as such. And I think so many prominent Tampa people um, had wonderful recipes that had been handed down from their mothers and grandmothers. And um, everyone loved to read it, not just the recipes, but the history that was in there as well. It's true, the histories, and they all start out with a story, and they talk about what life was like right. in those days. Do you, did it bring, does it bring back memories to you when you... Well, it does, especially the coffee punch, because that was a must at every coffee, tea, sometimes even, and luncheons, and the wonderful little cheese biscuits, which I make to this day when I have company. So... Yes, and, and the congealed salads, which were a must. And I still love them and still make them often. But they're, the whole way people ate then, I mean, that was before organic foods and green markets and, and all of that. And you went to one of the local grocery stores and you bought the ingredients. And if it said lard, you bought lard, you know. And if it said... Um, Oleo, which you don't see that too much anymore, though you bought oleo. But um, I don't think people were nearly as calorie conscious in the 70s as they are today. Well, I think part of the charm, part of the charm is, is from a different era. And it is kind of a testament to the way people lived in the 50s and 60s, how Florida was when you could go out onto the beach and just find enough blue crabs to make a, a stew. Some of the chapters open with the chapters on meat and venison are, and quail are our husbands go on the weekends and they hunt. And these are the recipes that we use to make the, the wild turkey, the roast leg of venison, the quail and chafing dish. 
it was a different way of living and that's just part of the of the fun and the charm of looking through these recipes not that you're going to make necessarily a, a roast leg of venison every weekend now but it's just the fun of seeing how maybe your grandmothers lived and it really is a history of Tampa, it's a history of cooking and it's a history of entertaining because a lot of those recipes really were used for entertaining at luncheons and at dinners and cocktail parties. It wasn't just a run in and fix something quick for dinner kind of thing. Well, let's go ahead and try some of the things that you've brought. This, um, we have some iconic dishes here. Why don't, who wants to talk about who wants to talk about this one? All right, this is I'm Stephanie Haas, uh, communications manager with the Junior League of Tampa. And just so you know, the <laughs> Tupperware still does make Jello Jello molds, so you can get those on Amazon. But this is the avocado buttermilk ring, and it is garnished with watercress and grapefruit slices. So it is a giant fluffy avocado. Wow. Okay, so, so this is, and you, you have this on a beautiful cake dish. It really does look pretty. It looks very spring party-ish. Yeah, it is spring and summery. And it does call, and this is the first time I've ever done this, it called for green food coloring in a savory dish, which I've never done before. Um, so that's what gives it some of its tint besides the avocado. Um, but it, it looks like a fluffy avocado salad in a ring. And then we have it on a bed of watercress, of course, with a few, <laughs> a few grapefruit slices. All right, let's, uh, shall we try it? Shall we try? Do we oh have a way to try it? What, what utensil do we even begin as, as we pass out plates? <laughs> a lot of these recipes are big with adding garni or garnish um, with mint or watercress or um, fruit slices. Slices know. of fruit? Yes. That looks or, really pretty the way you've got the pink grapefruit yes. slices in the middle there. This looks very Floridian. This is, um, I th you know, I was thinking it was going to be sweet. To me, it looks like lime sherbet is what it looks like. And I, but it is salty and it's like guacamole. It is. It's like a very pretty guacamole, guacamole fluffy, what'd you call it? Fluffy, fluffy avocado. It's, fl it's fluffy avocado, but it does have a hint of guacamole. Um, and now that I've made this, I can think of all kinds of things that I can make like into fluffy jello salads. Um, I would definitely add some tomato, add some cumin, and add a few um, jalapenos, and you could literally have a fluffy guacamole. A real pretty guacamole. This is a different way to make it. Would you make this again? Not this particular recipe, but I would absolutely start to experiment with what I could do with Knox gelatin and molds. There's a whole chapter on congealed molds. And you know, I love to do a congealed mold because then I usually put something in the center. Um, one of my favorite things to do is a tomato aspic, which is a congealed mold, and I put shrimp or chicken salad in the center of it. So you've got your seafood, and then you've got, I still call it salad, rather than, you know, a congealed ring. Um, but you've got your salad, and you've got your seafood, or your chicken, or whatever. Chicken and salad would have been great to put in the middle of this, for shrimp salad. Exactly. And, and it looks 
pretty too. I mean, it make, this looks beautiful with the watercress, but that's really pretty too when you mound the center with um, the chicken salad or the shrimp salad. Okay. But I will be trying this really <laughs> soon. I ate every bit of my life. I just loved it. That was former Junior League of Tampa cookbook chair Laura Holst and Junior League member Stephanie Haas. If you'd like to taste the avocado buttermilk ring from the Gasparilla cookbook for yourself, you can find the recipe on our website, thezestpodcast.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Do us a favor, help other people find the zest by sharing us on your Facebook page or your Pinterest page. I'm Robin Sussingham. Dalia Colon and I produce The Zest with help from Megan Trimble, Mark Hayes, and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media. Mm-hmm.